Uh, We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 today, continuing through the entire book of Ephesians that we've been going through since, goodness, April or May, I believe. So we're going to be starting in verse 7 this morning of chapter 4. Researchers now are looking at the concept of awe, A-W-E. They are people that are devoting their lives to studying awe. I listened to a podcast last week, and I was informed that human beings are the only mammals that can experience goosebumps for reasons other than being threatened. Did you know that? We're the only ones who experience awe, experience goosebumps for reasons other than being threatened. The researchers are saying that we are an awe-deprived society now. And their recommendation to us is that we find ways to experience awe more in our everyday life. They say that as a result of there being a lack of awe, we are more self-focused, we are more materialistic, individualistic. So they recommend, hey, no matter where you are, find ways to get awe in your life. So I'm going to pop up some images here on the screen. And even if you haven't been to these places, perhaps it will give you some awe. I'll confess to you that I've only been to one out of these four places. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon in here? Now they say that when you go, there is zero doubt that God exists. That's what they say. I've I've never been. The second one is Niagara Falls. Also have never been, but another one of those nature creations where awe exists. And then I was actually unsure whether this third location was even real because nowadays you can Google image everything and they can make up things that aren't even real. But somebody in the first service actually raised their hand and said they had been to this. I have no idea where it is. My guess is somewhere in the great northwest. Anybody in this service been to this exact location? Perhaps that's you sitting on the rock right there and we were not aware. Okay. Uh, I wanted to go there when I saw this. And then I know this last one is going to connect with every single person in the room. Maybe some of you get awe experiences from this. (laughs) I was very disappointed in the first service. After the first service, five or six people came up to me and said, why didn't you put that other stadium up? Many of you know what I'm talking about, and I would respond by saying, I know my context, okay? I don't want to be tuned out for the rest of the service by putting another stadium that might offend 90% of the population, okay? So, we get awe from a variety of experiences and a variety of places. But I believe that God's word for us in this room is a source of awe. And this morning, we're going to unpack Ephesians chapter 4, 7 through 13. So if you would, grab your Bible, grab your phone, or look on the screen. It's going to be up there as well. Starting in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ministers of the gospel, those that have been called by God to lead churches and organizations and go out on the mission field, absolutely love this passage. Ephesians 4, 7 through 13 is like our sweet spot, okay? But you have to understand, beginning in verse 7, that Paul is talking about grace here. Now, there, there are two types of grace. There's God's saving grace, which we receive at salvation. Grace, as we know, is getting what we don't deserve. So religion teaches, do these things and you will be right with God. And Christianity teaches, Jesus has made you right with God. Accept him and go and do good as a result of that. Do you see the difference? One is, one is us-centered. It's human-centered. Religion focuses on us. Christianity focuses on Jesus and his work. I was having lunch with a friend just last week, and we're dialoguing about Christianity, and he's not a believer, and he's really struggling with this concept of there's really no string attached. There's really nothing that I have to do. It's really a free gift. Yeah, it is. There are no strings attached. There is no catch. Jesus offers this free gift to all who will accept it and follow after him. So there's the saving grace. But in verse 7 here, we're talking about a grace gift. Every one of us in this room who is a believer in Jesus Christ has been given a gift that we are to use to build up the body of Christ. It's a grace gift. You don't deserve it. But it's given to you for the sole purpose of building up this body. Now, many of you in this room have probably taken a spiritual gifts test before or a spiritual gifts inventory. You can Google this. There's tons of them. And you can find out exactly what gift you have, according to 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans as well where they're mentioned. You can find out what gift you have. Now, we offer the exact same test here. It's called the place assessment. It's a rather, maybe it takes 20 minutes to take. It's going to give you your giftedness. It's going to show you where your passions are. But our test does one more thing. It takes all those gifts and those passions, and it tries to identify areas within our local body that your gifts would be best utilized. And we teach this in a class that we call GraceWorks. Okay? And we have another class coming up, October 8th, 15th, and 22nd at 9.30. Christy is going to be leading us through that class. There's a table in the lobby today if you want to sign up for it. If you do not know what your gift is, take this class. See how your gift can be best utilized 
in the body. Because you have it. Now I'll tell you that my gift is prophecy. No, I don't mean that I can predict the future. What I mean is that I have a very strong sense of what God's word says. And I get very, very frustrated when people deter away from that. Now every spiritual gift, Christy will tell you this when you take this class, every spiritual gift has its strengths and it has its weaknesses. So one of the strengths of the prophecy gift is that I, I stay very close to the word of God. The bad news is when I see people moving away from the word of God, it tends to make me kind of mean. All right? So just this morning, Christy texted me and said, how can I pray for you? And I told her, help me to be a prophet, but also be an encourager. Now, in case you don't know, our pastor has the gift of exhortation, the gift of encouragement. I have the gift of prophecy, so I need David's encouragement to me as I preach. Because I know that it's not my job to sit up here and tell you what you should be doing. It's to encourage you in love to be a part of what God is doing. So every spiritual gift has a strength and a weakness. The downside of encouragement is somebody could come up to you, even though you did a terrible job, and tell you that was the best thing that they'd ever seen. Okay, That's what exhorters can sometimes do. So when Pastor David tells me the next day that I had a really good sermon on Sunday, I'm a little iffy on whether or not that's true, okay? But every gift has a strength and a weakness. Hey, what is your gift? Do you know your gift? If you know it, are you using it in this body to build it up? See, Paul goes on to say that Jesus descended into the earth. Now, what's interesting here is throughout the New Testament, we always find Peter, Paul, James, Jesus himself, referring back to Old Testament scriptures. It always happens. Because the Jews of Jesus' day, they're going to know the law and the prophets and the writings. They're going to know these books. And so right here, we have Paul referring back to Psalm 68, 18. And then in verses 9 and 10, you see in my Bible, it's in parentheses. He is interpreting what that verse means to his audience that he's writing to here. The number one alluded to and quoted book in the Old Testament, talking about, excuse me, in the New Testament, talking about the Old Testament, is the book of Psalms. Far and away, the most quoted book is the Psalms. It's like 68 times, and Isaiah is second with like 55. So Paul goes back to the Psalms here. Why does he do it? Because he knows his audience would understand it. Because they knew the Old Testament. The greatest gift of grace that Jesus provided for you and I, apart from his death on the cross, was the fact that he was willing to leave the comfort of heaven to come live among us. He descended. His seat at the right hand of the Father, he abandoned to come among you and I to experience temptation and hunger 
and anxiety and frustration. Everything but sin, Jesus himself experienced. Which is why you can identify with him. He has experienced everything you have experienced apart from sin itself. He knows your heartache. He understands your suffering because he was willing to leave and come down among us. But luckily for you and I, Jesus didn't stay here forever. He went back up. Now this is important because the entire book of Acts, if you've never looked into the book of Acts closely or read it, I would encourage you to go read it. It is the truest and best picture of the way the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to behave so in Acts chapter 1, he's, he's meeting with his apostles and his disciples, and Jesus is teaching them. And he says, you're going to go, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I'm going to leave, and the message is going to continue to go forward. An interesting note here, the ends of the earth in Acts chapter 1 is America, isn't it? That's one of the places they go. We received the gospel because men and women were willing to pay the price, to share it with others, and it worked its way across the Atlantic and eventually found its way here. We are the ends of the earth that Jesus is talking about here. So in Acts chapter 2, Jesus has gone up in Acts chapter 1, and what happens? Jesus sends his spirit to fall on all of those who are believers in Jesus Christ. I was flipping through Acts just a few weeks ago. I'm not studying through it or anything like that. I don't even remember why I was there. But I got to this little section in the middle of chapter 5. And it says the disciples and the apostles, they're doing wonders and they're doing miracles. And then there's this little verse that says... And Peter was so filled with the Holy Spirit that people just wanted to be in his shadow. And I stopped myself in my tracks and I said, that's it right there. That's what I'm going to start praying. That I would be so filled with the Spirit of God that it's not even that people want to talk to me or, or have discussions with me, but just that if they could get in my shadow, they would sense the presence of God in my life. Hey, we need to be praying that, brothers and sisters. That we would be so spirit-filled that people would just want to be in our shadow. So, we have to be thankful that Jesus was willing to descend and then ascend back up. Because that's how we receive his spirit. His spirit is the one moving us forward now. And then we get to the, the meat of the passage here where Paul explains the people that have been designated for building up the body of Christ. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints, that would be the church, for the work of the ministry. This is the plan that God has for transforming the world. 
it's the church of Jesus Christ. There is no plan B. There is no other idea that we will come up with that will trump this. You know what's interesting about this passage is the one word that we don't find here? Disciple. As I was studying that this week, you know what? Paul did this intentionally. Because the ones on the stage, the ones getting paid to do ministry, they're not the only disciples. Every single one of us are disciples. And so we're all told to go and make other disciples. That's the plan. That's the method. Now, there are a number of ways and a number of different ways that that looks within your context. It's going to look different in New Orleans than it would in Seattle and than it would in Ghana. But the mission is to go and make disciples. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's my job. That's Pastor David's job. That's Christy's job. Bob, Faye, Trey, whoever, Andrew, whoever else I'm missing. We're to equip you for the work of the ministry. So if I were to come up to you at the end of the service today and say, I have this man or this woman who needs to be discipled in the basics of the Christian faith. Would you be willing to walk that person through this journey? If you can answer yes then I would ask you, are you doing that with somebody right now? And if the answer is no, my guess would be it's one of two things. Either you don't feel like we're equipping you adequately, which is very possible, or there are equipping opportunities here that you are not taking advantage of. It could be either of those answers. So how do you get equipped for the work of the ministry at First Baptist New Orleans. Well, I'm so glad you asked. Because there are two primary ways that we equip you here. Number one is through being in a small group. Where six to thirty and everywhere in between meet together every Sunday morning. And we pray together. We study scripture together. We share one another's burdens. We encourage one another. And through the process of being in that group week after week, whether you meet on a Sunday or you meet in somebody's house during the week, through that process, you are equipped to then go out and do the work of the ministry. And then there is our care effect ministry, the other primary way through which you are equipped here, where we go into the prisons we teach at the nursing home. We teach English classes. We feed the homeless. We go to the clubs on Bourbon Street. Why? Because when you serve together, you grow. I can give you an example of this. August of 2009, Ashley and I just moved to New Orleans a couple of months before. We signed up for the initial launch of Care Effect. Back in those days, we served the homeless at the wall which is a place right off of Elysian Fields, and they booted us out of there. And so we went and served for a few weeks uh, outside the New Orleans mission, and then we ended up going to the Oz. And that group that's at the Oz started, or at least a portion of that group, started back at the wall in 2009. So one of the very first nights we were out there, the leader, one of the leaders of the wall at the time, he came up to me, 
And he said, hey, I need you to take this man and, you know, go down the road and jump him off. His car's dead. Well, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I don't know this guy. I'm not really comfortable taking some dude I don't know to, like, an alley and jumping him off after dark. Okay? But ah, I didn't want to disappoint. As a people pleaser, I didn't want to disappoint my leader. So I loaded him up into my car. I drove, Ashley remembers this, we drove him down there, and we were looking around to make sure, you know, goodness, I hope we're going to be all right. And I jumped this guy off, and he was on his merry way. And I look back on that experience now, and I realize, hey, that was an equipping experience for me. Because God was already preparing me for ministry that I would do many, many years later, including today, where I regularly pick people up, don't tell Ashley, that I don't know, and take them to bus stations, and I go to dangerous places, parts of town, after dark, and all of these things. And I didn't realize at the time, but it was an equipping experience for me. It got me to realize that we don't just serve when we can be safe or when we can be comfortable or only the people that we know. No. Jesus reorganizes all of those thoughts and he says, no, 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 you serve me even when it's dangerous, even when it's uncomfortable, even after dark. Because that's what we're called to do. So I know this feels like a plug for small groups in Care Effect, and you would be correct. <laughs> that is how we equip people at First Baptist New Orleans. Now, are there other ways you can be equipped? Absolutely. But that's what we passionately believe in. That the best way to be equipped to build up the body of Christ within this building and outside is to be engaged with other believers and studying God's word and to go out and serve. This is an Acts 2 concept. It's not new to us. The believers gather daily for prayer, breaking of the bread, fellowship, and teaching. We just copycatted what the early church did. So I encourage you, come be a part of what God is doing through these equipping opportunities. The church of Jesus Christ is not going anywhere. You can disagree with its philosophy, you can critique it, you can be uh, cynical about it, but here's the reality. It's not dying. It might be refined, it might dwindle in number, but we know that the church of Jesus Christ will reign supreme forever. So, I'd encourage you to get on board. Be a part of it, of what God is doing. Not just at First Baptist New Orleans, but what he's doing around the world. In China, South Korea, in Africa, where Christianity is exploding rapidly. God is doing amazing things. So trust the plan. Trust that God has given you a gift, and he wants you to be using it, not only inside these walls, but out into the world. And then we want to aspire towards these qualities that Paul gives us here. Now there are three qualities that he mentions here. Unity, knowledge of the Son of God, and then maturity. If you read all of Paul's letters, you pick up one thing very, very quickly. 
He's very concerned about a unified church. He constantly talks about unity. The fragmenting of the church is heartbreaking to Paul, as it should be heartbreaking to us. So, how do we become unified? Well, we become unified through understanding the core mission of what the church does. It's what we've already talked about. Matthew 28, okay? Go and make disciples. And the churches that stay aligned with that mission tend to be unified. And those that stray tend to become divided. So we are united through that common vision that Jesus himself gives us to go and make disciples. As I said, the way in which we do it changes depending on the context, but the mission remains the same. That's how we stay unified. That's how Paul kept the churches he ministered to unified. He's keeping his eyes on that commandment that Jesus gives us. Then Paul says we need to grow in the knowledge of the Son of God. Pastor David says almost on a weekly basis here that we are Jesus' people. We stay centered on the teachings of Jesus. Now everything you and I know and believe about Jesus comes from this book. So we can have opinions about what we think Jesus would do in a certain situation. We can have ideas about what he would and wouldn't do. But the reality is, at the end of the day, we go to this and we see if what we believe about what we think Jesus would do lines up with this. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't address every single minor detail. But we're left with enough of a picture to realize That Jesus stands for certain things and he stands against other things. And so we stay centered on growing in the knowledge of the Son of God. And then we want to mature in the faith. You see, there's a little conjunction that Paul uses in verse 13, until. Everybody knows what a conjunction, we all went through 7th grade grammar. It connects one thought to another okay so he's connecting here in verse 13 what we just talked about in 11 and 12 so he has given the church shepherds and teachers and evangelists apostles prophets to build up the church for the work of the ministry until all of these things happen unity knowledge of the son of god and maturity Now, we know Paul tells us that we are to move from milk to what? Solid food. But in that process in the middle, as we're moving from milk to solid food, it is extremely messy. When when my children were very, very young and I was giving them a bottle, I used to think, I can't wait until they can eat regular food. What a mistake that was. Because there are nights when we're feeding them and I'm so obsessed with cleanliness and I look at my floor and I have to leave the room because it's, they're incapable of eating clean. doesn't matter what it is. They can't do it. 
So as we move from milk to solid food, we, we understand that it's going to be extremely messy. And we are going to butcher it sometimes. But here's where the church of Jesus Christ becomes so important. Because it's never going away. So it can be there to encourage you. It can be there to confront you when you need to be confronted. It can be there to love you when you need to be loved. That's the church of Jesus Christ. I was at a football game last weekend, and I won't tell you who was playing or where I was for fear of persecution, but I was at a game, and this was a Chick-fil-A kickoff game, okay? So Chick-fil-A is the title sponsor. We all know about Chick-fil-A and their principles and their values, and so they had a prayer before the game. Now, we do this in New Orleans. It's not that uncommon, but oftentimes uh, when you pray at these events, they sometimes put restrictions on what the speaker is actually allowed to say. You know, you just generically pray for the players and the safety of them and you might just have to use God instead of really narrowing in on who it is that you believe so either Chick-fil-A doesn't have that rule or the guy that prayed just ignored it because at the end of his prayer he said and now to the one who saved me and so many others the name of Jesus Christ amen Now, 75,000 people who really, at the moment, were not all that concerned about Jesus. And guess what? They might have continued to not be concerned. But you know what they heard that night? They heard the name of Jesus. And they heard that Jesus saved this man who prayed the prayer. As we sing this morning, there is power in the name of Jesus. So for me, in that building, even though I was laser-focused on the task at hand of beating the opponent last week, I had an awe experience of my own. Because when Jesus' name was said, goosebumps swelled up inside of me. So we have to ask ourselves the question this morning. This is what we're left with. We follow the teachings of Jesus. He is the center of what our life is supposed to be about. So is he... A consultant? Or is he Lord? Some of you in this room are consultants. And you know when you're a consultant, you go to a company or an organization, you recommend things that they should do, and then you hightail it out of there. And it's left to the organization or the company to decide what are we going to implement or what are we not. And we can use Jesus like he's a consultant. I've done it. I know you probably have too. We, we consult him and then we do our own thing. But on this journey of moving from milk to solid food, he has to stop being a consultant and become Lord of our life. That's what Brett and Allison said in their interview earlier, is that they offered God a blank check. That's what lordship is. It's a blank check. It's saying, God... I don't care what it means for me or my family, what might have to change, what might make me uncomfortable. I give you my life as a blank check. The church of Jesus Christ is about new creations. 
2 Corinthians 5.16. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So we measure the growth of Jesus Christ based on new creations. Not numerical growth, although it's important to have that and to, to know why you're growing or why you're not. It's new creations. Have you been made a new creation in Jesus Christ today? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for Paul's words to us. God, you've gifted each and every person who's a believer in Jesus Christ with a gift. God, help us to use those for the building up of not only First Baptist New Orleans, but the building up of the church around the world. God, there is power in the name of Jesus. I pray that you would give us a burden to disciple people, a burden to share the gospel with our neighbors, with our family members, with our co-workers that don't know you, so that the result would be a new creation in Jesus Christ. God, we love you. We thank you for your word and the truth of it. And we rest in you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.